Hey guys, welcome to the Next Level Agents Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Kaufman, and along with my business partner and co-host, Fred Weaver, we bring to you our podcast all about getting to the next level. Sometimes we talk to real estate agents, sometimes brokers, sometimes people just in and around our space, and sometimes just entrepreneurs in general. But our point here is to talk to the brightest and the best and to pull gold nuggets out of them and bring them to you so that way you can take little actionable pieces of advice, sometimes big actionable pieces of advice and make your business even better and help you get to the next level. Do me a favor, if you haven't already, go over to ratethispodcast.com, ratethispodcast.com forward slash NLA, stands for Next Level Agents, and please leave us a five-star review if you have not already. All right, without further ado, welcome to today's episode. All right, guys, we're back on the Next Level Agents podcast, and I'm joined again uh, for the second time by Mr. Ryan Gorman. Ryan, how are you doing today? Very well, sir. How are yourself? Uh, doing great. I'm I'm excited to uh, to have this conversation. Number one, to catch up, you know, from a podcast standpoint, but also just to be able to to catch up with you, uh, you know, personally. And and it seems like it's been a while since we last spoke. We've missed each other a few times, and in Phoenix, just barely. And uh, so yeah. I'm excited to have this conversation, man. Yeah, I was looking forward to it. Yeah, ships passing the night in Phoenix, uh, unfortunately. You try as you might, you were always very accommodating, but uh, I always had tight tight schedules. So one of these days, I'll get back out there. Love to visit. I, uh, you know, I do, I do the same thing when I travel. Uh, I'm usually about as tight in and out of the city uh, that I'm going to as possible because I want to, yep. normally, because I just want to get home. And so, I very rarely have much fudge room, so I uh, I can totally appreciate that and uh, and have you know have no problem with that. You know, one of the things I noticed when you were here that stood out to me was um, you're using the the light rail, uh, and you, you kind of were talking sure. about. You, in fact, if I remember right, you made a post about not just using the light rail, but then also walking. So that seems yeah. something that that's really important to you. Uh, can you tell Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a total transit geek. Uh, part of the reason why it's so important is because it's so, I'll say, equalizing or democratizing. I mean, the, the concept of being able to walk, bike, or take transit to things means that for someone like myself, who I, I could afford a car, I don't have a car, but I could afford a car, um, it doesn't make as much of a difference. I think it makes it a more pleasant living environment. For, but for people for whom having a car is a significant financial burden, and not just the vehicle itself, but the maintenance and the insurance. And, uh, you know, if anything goes goes wrong with it, then it can be expensive. Actually, I was at the dealership this morning with my wife's car. And, uh, you know, she damaged the mirror. And they were like, yeah, it's like two grand. What? Like two grand? I mean, you know, every study will show that there's literally tens of millions of Americans who can't afford a $400 unexpected expense, let alone $2,000 unexpected expense. And being able to walk bike increasingly bike um i bike everywhere but uh, or take transit is uh really opens up the possibilities for people who can't necessarily swing the considerable expense and we look at a housing affordability which is where i spend all my time now housing itself is not isolated right it's how close are you to uh, work school groceries um you know the different things that you need to do every day if you're not that close, you need to buy a car anyway, um, or have access to a car that can potentially be expensive on a, on a part-time basis, then it's not that expensive. You know, you can you can get a place that's a few hundred dollars less than market. And then if you spend that few hundred dollars on a car every month, then it's not uh, it's not very helpful for you. So so anyway, I uh I'm all about the efficiency of things and uh transit can be extremely efficient. I love that Phoenix uh, I could actually walk to uh, multiple modes of transportation, actually I could walk to the airport i had to take the uh bikes to the airport the rental bikes i forget what the the name of them is uh in phoenix there's uh there's a handful of them but i know exactly what you're referring to which is excellent uh, i can take the light rail there's a bus uh that runs out there as well and of course you can always uh you know do ride share or uh drive that's totally connected you know in when you look at the other sides so we're not necessarily the affordability side of the equation but sort of, you know, what's driving some of Phoenix economy, it's a great place to have a conference in part because the airport is so proximate and so accessible. Yes, very few people are walking to the airport from a conference with their luggage. Like I'm a bit of a lunatic with that, but it's great to be able to land and quickly get downtown. If you're planning a conference for something like maybe um, 
government services or something where people don't necessarily have an enormous amount of disposable income, having that light rail actually decreases pretty significantly the overall cost of attending the conference for those who have to pay for it themselves or go through TNE. And then you've got lots of hotel options downtown uh, across the cost spectrum that can make it pretty affordable there too. So anyway, it's a great place to have a conference. That's why we had our, our uh, Gem Blue conference there uh, not too long ago, back in October. So uh, anyway, I could go on and on. You asked a short question. I gave a long answer. That's just sort of, uh, that's kind of my MO. Sorry about that, but there's yeah. a lot of reasons why I dig it. I love it. Uh, well, you know, what's funny is I was thinking back. I remember, I think our last conversation that we had, at least for the podcast, I had asked you a question about kind of how you kind of got your, found your way into real estate and you somewhat jokingly, but now I'm wondering if this is kind of like whether it was actually premeditated or just sort of deep seated and it came out, you mentioned applying for a job in, in Philly at the title insurance company in part because you could walk to work. Uh, and at the yes. time you were flying, I think you made some sort of remark about your, your wife, uh, making a joke about like, Hey, are we going to live together at some point? And, uh, yes. and then exactly you right. applied for the job that ultimately led to, uh, to, you know, the next few roles within, within the largest real estate company, uh, in the country right now. And so is that, did you make that remark like offhanded or is it sort of deep seated? And now you've realized like that is just really important to you. Uh, probably a little bit of both. I mean, I've been walking forever, uh, you know, as places that people normally don't walk. So when I live in Philly, for instance, you know, my wife always jokes that you can never ask me if something's in walking distance because the answer is always yes, even if it takes three and a half hours. Uh, and I talk about Philly as a walking city because you can walk everywhere. So uh, even growing up, I think that was important to me. Uh, but definitely proximity was pretty important. I mean, the the, the also ran for that. So the other thing that I contemplated, uh, there were two other jobs I contemplated when I uh, took that gig. I don't think we talked about it. one of them was was in the city, uh, Comcast Ventures, uh, you know, kind of a a uh, venture capital firm within Comcast that was in Philly, and I would have been able to take transit to work, which would have been uh, would have been cool. Uh, the I didn't dig some of the approach that they took, but I thought it was pretty cool. The um, you know the the overall opportunity, but the other one was a bike shop that was about seven and a half miles from the house that uh, I was for sale, and I was looking to buy. And the big motivation there was uh, bike to work, which I thought would be awesome. Uh, uh, so, so I'm somewhat not surprised to hear you say that yet also extremely surprised to hear you say that, like how, how, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment, but like how much of a consideration was that buying that bike shop and running that business, like on the, on those three opportunities that you were evaluating, how, how serious was that a contender? Um, it, I guess it came in second place. Uh, the the other one, the one that I ended up taking moved so quickly that you know I didn't really have a chance to sort of do head to head too much. Um, but it was a it was I'd say a pretty serious contender. I mean, I I contemplated buying something to run it for a long time. There were some other options that I considered. One was a um, like a mobile home community that was also like a vacation destination place that was a little bit east of us, down toward the shore, and that was pretty cool. My wife and I pretty seriously uh, considered that. Uh, but the bike shop, yeah, I mean, I was pretty stoked about it. My wife was pretty excited about it. Uh, that ultimately one of the challenges is with a, unlike the business that, that you're in where we've spent a lot of our careers, it's a little more difficult to extend the impact of that unless you sort of, uh, you know, get into multiple locations and whatnot, which, which could be cool. So it's one of the things I consider that was ultimately what hamstrung it was just the concept of growth, uh, and what it would actually take to grow that really substantially, uh, which is something that was, that's always been interesting to me. So it was a pretty serious contender, I think. So I asked that, that really stuck out to me because it wasn't just last week and I'm going to, I'm going to forget who, who it was that, that I was, uh, who I was reading about. It was, a, it was kind of a small business. Um, and also just kind of, I'll just call it someone who covers the business period. Uh, mm -hmm. and he was referencing the fact that there's more and more, um, I think he was talking more about Ivy league people, but, or people who took a similar path to you where investment banking sort of avoiding mm -hmm. that path now and actually buying small businesses and operating them at a super high level. He started, he was in whatever his observation was just has noticed an uptick in that and people going, you know what, hmm. not going to go sort of this traditional path of, I think the joke that Morgan Housel makes is 
Like if you don't come in on Saturday, don't even bother coming in on Sunday when you get into the <laughs> making world. Right. And, yeah, that's about right. and so I, I was just, you know, so that just struck me that you, that you brought that up that after I've just read reading that a week or so ago. Yeah, I, I can totally see it. I mean, it's funny on the one hand, if you bring that level of sort of maniacal focus that, you know, so easily in investment banking, doing a hundred hours in a week is, is not atypical doing anything at least, I don't know how it is as much now, but back when I was doing it, anything less than 80 hours a week would be considered like vacation. Like that might be like a week of Thanksgiving. Maybe you put in less than 80 hours, but otherwise you're hammering the whole time. And it's seven days a week and you're oftentimes going in the morning and go home, you know, a day or two later, as opposed to, you know, later that night. If you did that kind of thing with a lot of small businesses, small businesses that have the opportunity to to grow, then you can easily create, well, easily is the wrong uh, the wrong word, perhaps, but you can possibly create uh, overall financial uh, as well as probably emotional returns that are substantially higher than what you could in investment banking. Now, when you get into the thin air of investment banking, it, you know you start to get into some very high income levels that are harder to match through entrepreneurship. Not impossible, but harder um, at small scale entrepreneurship. But I could totally see it. I, I will also say on the flip side, it's quite humbling for many people, including me, to create small business after having operated in a large business, right? Because you kind of quickly figure out you don't actually know how to do anything. You know, <laughs> you sort of like, like if you're, if you've been leading, I mean, for instance, me, it was a $5 billion organization. Uh, now it's me and my partner, right? And we have like large virtual teams that work on with each project, but uh, it's, it's nowhere near the same when you go to step on the gas. Uh, you know, so for instance, for me, over this past weekend, I was, Unfortunately, it tells me I'm a terrible person for doing this, but getting our, our legal team and our tax team to work, uh, you know, straight through the weekend to try and get a deal closed. We're doing an opportunity zone deal that uh, we're trying to get closed here on Thursday. And it's just not typical. It's just the, the pace at, at which I work is just atypical. And then when you go to actually do something, it's like, well, there's no one to ask to do that. You have to do that. Like you have to go figure this thing out. You have to crack this code. You can pay someone $1,500 an hour to do it, uh, perhaps, but that's not very scalable. So for me, it's invigorating. It's awesome. I, I love it. But it's one of those things where if you take the CEO of a home builder and, you know, drop them off in, you know, suburban Phoenix and ask them to build a house, like, I think they just stare blankly at you. Like, I, yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know where to start. Like, what do you, like, what do you, do? what do I do first? Like, do I go to the township, I guess? Or I have to do like, what, I, what am I supposed to do now? Like, it's impossible, even though they do a great job running an at scale builder who does 5,000 units a year. Yeah. That's so funny that you mentioned that. I found that to be, I've, I found that to be true just anecdotally and in, in different experiences I've had with people um, and sometimes seeing people come out of the, I'll call it the corporate world and into the small business world. It's like, there's an adjustment. It's not that like, to your point, like there's not somebody else to do this. Like I got to go get this yeah. done uh, That's right. and, and I got to get it done now. There's because like the month ends at the end of the month, uh, oftentimes totally. in small businesses. And when you're talking about a billion dollar company or multi-billion dollar company, there's teams and, and month end while, while maybe important, not nearly the type of importance that you have in a small business. And it, you know, both have their, their pluses and minuses. I could see how it, I can definitely see for myself, how I would struggle in a, in a more, uh, in a, in a larger company, you know, in I guess a quote unquote corporate role. And I've seen others from corporate roles struggle, uh, to adjust and adapt because it is, it is so wildly different. It can be, I mean, I think you do a phenomenal job, but you, you would have to sort of remap your stuff. You'd have to remap your skills and your experience to take advantage of a different set of tools. Like if you just, if all you ever had was hand tools, you never had power tools, you can become a phenomenal carpenter. And then someone sets you up with a factory and says, great, we need you to do it a thousand times the pace. You can't just run around and try and do what you were doing before and use like, you know, the, the, the larger tools to do it. You need to change everything about your process. And so that's what you'd have to do, but, but keeping the heart of an entrepreneur, you know, front and center would be, I think, crucial because people lose that very quickly, I think, in the, the much larger atmosphere where it's kind of like, you know, not my job creeps in. And, you know, you, you with your organization, your team, like you just can't tolerate not my job. Like people, they can't say that. They can't think that. They can't feel that. They have to feel like the whole thing is is uh, crucial and that they're a crucial part of, of everything that's happening and that that you can you can lose that pretty quickly. But it's, if you remap, so that if you keep that heart and you remap to the larger scale, I think it would be invigorating for the larger organization. If an entrepreneur steps in and we've seen it, we've done it. 
and also invigorating for someone who's operating a large organization to go small um, and, and really learn how to actually practically, tactically do things. That was one of the criticisms that people always had of me was that I would try and do too much myself. And I was rarely the best person to do it, but I never really felt super comfortable leading people who did a thing that I didn't know how to do. That's interesting. I, you know, hearing you talk about that, Ryan, I also, th- also think about something else you said. Um, we talked a lot about leadership and got, and this was a while ago, but uh, when last time we recorded probably four, almost four years ago, but you said wow. something to the effect of like, you care more about finding people interested in doing their job than keeping their job. Oh, and totally. That's the mentality of it's, it's gotta get done. Right. Whether it's someone's job, whether it's your job or my job kind of doesn't matter. It's got to get done. Right. Uh, So I, so I could see how you could adapt like that. And I could also see, I'm guessing in all of your experience uh, on the corporate side of things. I mean, not, not just to, I'm not trying to vilify corporate by any means, but I would imagine finding people who are more interested in keeping their job than doing their job is probably super commonplace, uh, you know, and uh, which is probably why it became something that you you specifically looked for, is my guess. Absolutely. And, and I think we did uh, a good job when I say me, or so we, it's mostly not me, uh, but did a good job sort of finding our disproportionate share of those people who are customer service professionals at heart, people who just can't handle a thing not being right, uh, can't handle someone not being served, the kind of person who you know, sits in the airport and, and looks at a long line of, of people who need their questions answered and just like walks up to them and starts using the app to, you know, you pull up the United app and start answering their questions. Like, just cause like, Hey, where are you trying to go? I thought I heard you saying you need to connect to Orlando. Do you know, you can actually switch over to American if you missed your flight. Like, Oh yeah, sure. It's right over next terminal over. You just take the bus. To, you know, It's like that kind of person is exactly who we saw. Uh, and I think, you know, more often than not, we we're able to find them, but I love working with that person. I love watching that person work. I love supporting that person, being part of their success. I love helping that person level up and saying, you you are phenomenal. I love what you're doing. I want you to do that at a larger scale. And I know that might be a little scary to you because it's just not how you've worked. You you have been the personal doing, but imagine if you could support other people doing in the same way. Let me, let me help you do that. Let's let's partner together and help you kind of scale up your leadership. That's, that's, that's fun. That's a fun stuff. So I experienced you operating that way as, as a boss, as an employer, as a, as a leader, uh, at, at your last company, I saw, because of the, I saw the way you interacted with your folks and literally, literally even the janitor in the building up to the person that was a, an, an executive a peer or, and even a step above you. Uh, I, so my question to you is, do you look for that? Because that's how that's how you operate and how you want to operate or did somebody teach you that? Hmm. Oh, probably both. I would say, uh, if anyone taught it to me, I'll do a real disservice to people who've mentored me over the years by not, you know, calling them out quite, uh, Francisco Pret, uh, I'll, I'll call out, uh, he was a director in investment banking when I was there and just a, a great guy. And he's actually a headhunter now, like for, you know, the top firms on wall street. So he he's out there looking for that at, at a larger scale today. He's awesome. But, but I'd say my father, uh, I mean, he, for most of my childhood, he was, um, he was a vice principal and then a principal, he was a teacher and a coach, but, um, for most of my childhood, he was a vice principal and a principal. He was then the principal of my high school. Uh, and then eventually superintendent. And um, and now he's a, he leads a community college that does awesome work, vocational work, and uh, helps people really get, get where they need to go. And just some really super innovative programs. Actually, believe it or not, people come from all over the world to go to his rural community college. Like, no joke, it's like 14 different countries like to go to a rural community college in New Jersey. But um, he was like the epitome of all of that. I mean, there was nothing below him. Nobody was below him. He was, uh, you know, inspired by the work everyone did. He loved to, you know, see their passion and ignite that in them. And so I guess I probably learned by watching and working with him. Also, we're kind of naturally disposed to find people who are kind of like us, which is Part of the reason why we really need to work at diversity uh, and equity and inclusion, because it's just your default is oftentimes that you oftentimes think the right answer is your answer, right? Like, and the right way to think is the way you think. Um, and it's, it's hard to invent because if, if you thought a different way of thinking was better, you'd probably do it. 
So it's hard to sort of withhold judgment and think that someone else's approach could actually be better. Like, for instance, I've seen people who are much more direct um, and I'll say kind of less emotionally tied and who are extremely effective managers like that. I I would just I'd be in awe of their approach. No, I'd be in awe of their results, not their approach. Uh, And I would try and like stoke myself to be a little bit more like them. And it would just fall away because it's so unnatural for me. Um, even though I watched the results again, I'd be like really like deeply impressed. Um, but I still couldn't quite get myself out of my own likeness, I suppose, in terms of who I was, who I was looking to surround myself with. Gotcha. That makes a sense. Um, I, f- I feel like I completely took us off a couple side streets there. Uh, I'm, here, I'm looking at your shirt. I could see BTCRE. Uh, yeah. That's what I was hoping to talk about. Can you can you tell us a little bit about about that and what, what kind of sure. let's start with what it is and in your mission kind of overall you know goal and and then we'll take it from there. Sure. Yeah, my my partner and I Brian uh I am Martino, just a world-class human being, uh just like one of the not just smartest but highest integrity, uh, most thoughtful people uh, anyone will ever meet. Uh but he and I founded this company uh, 12 or 13 years ago. And at the time he jumped on and uh, as the full-time leader of it, and we stuck to commercial. So, so the deal that I have with my, uh, my prior firm is that our, my day job is largely in residential. And so we'd stick to commercial in the, uh, in the work that we did on the development side. Uh, and it was founded as a real estate development and advisory firm. So we do some advisory work, uh, but we try and do real estate development up in Boston. Uh, focused on commercial. So we buy um, oftentimes uh, disused or, or, or derelict space. Like our first one was a 100-year-old slaughterhouse that we converted into tech startup space and pulled companies out of MIT Media Lab. It eventually became the global headquarters of Form Labs, a 3D printer company, but that took a lot to get there. There were lots of other you know steps in between. And, and we've done that a bunch. Now we have a, an assemblage going along the Charles River in Boston, and we're, and we're doing that, which is great. Since I stepped away, from the firm officially just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, now with BTCRE, where it opens up the world to what we can do. So now we're doing residential as well. Uh, so BTCRE stands for uh, Be the Change, BTC, the Mahatma Gandhi quote, Be the Change You Want to See in the World. And of course, the RE is real estate. So we founded it always with a long-term vision of really impacting communities in a positive way. Even when we looked at commercial buildings, we, I remember one we looked at, we, we couldn't ultimately buy it uh someday it's our white whale so someday maybe we will um and it was in a community that between the t-stop in boston and the building we were were looking at was um a uh community that had uh, it was a a non-us born community that had all the shops along the street in between and there was no english language um frontage to the to any of the shops right so there were shops that were really they were owned by and really serving uh uh, community from Southeast Asia, two different communities, really. And that that group, when we were looking at buying the building, we approached the um, community group there and, and we we're saying like, well, if we were to buy this thing down here, I wonder if we could front the money and help you to to include some um, maybe English language signage and some other things along this, this, uh, this corridor here, if, big if, if you wanted to participate in the economic uh, throughput that would go through here. Cause we're gonna bring hundreds of people a day off the tee, walking right by your shops and going to this building. They need to get coffee, buy the paper, back then people bought paper a lot more, uh, you know, grab a dinner, whatever, like, and and possibly on the way back, you know, stop for dinner, drinks, whatever. Um, and and people were thrilled by that concept, but that that kind of approach to the community is maybe not the default for, for many um, you know, developer groups. So that's the approach we took. And now we can do residential. So we've got uh, three, well, tomorrow I've got a meeting with a, a, a mayor, uh, hopefully number four, but three developments going. Uh, the So in total, you know, we'll see we'll see what we can get done, but uh, likely between four and 500 units uh, in total, both uh, multifamily rental as well as uh, for sale and big affordability components of it. Like one is with a, a city's public housing authority to try and uh, decommission a, a public housing building and bring people into a mixed market rate and uh, subsidized building that'd be pretty healthy numbers for the percentage of uh, uh, public housing affiliated. And the other one will be designed, uh, you know, affordable by design, basically uh, to be sold to folks who are in the community rather than sort of a more of a gentrifying approach, but really people who are already there today and taking some 
see if we can pull it off, but some very creative financing approaches to try and make it just affordable by design where they can really step into ownership. And so that's kind of where we're going. So you started to, you just partially answered my next question, which is as you get into something like affordable housing, which is obviously, um, it's an issue. It's something that is important, I think, for the future of, of a lot of cities, if not every city in the country. Um, it's one thing to say, I'm going to go build and develop, you know, affordable housing, but then how does, it, it seems to me anytime you've got some, something that's like a big idea like that. And I say big idea as a, as, that's positive, right? It's going to create sure. a lot of change in the direction in which we want. It, it seems like politics and government and stuff and red tape and all that stuff sort of usually gets in the middle between intention and what ends up getting used. How do you, I guess, what are some of the things that you do to make, make sure is probably a strong word, but make sure that is the effect it actually has on the community yeah. that people are actually able to take care of that. Like, are there things you can put into place uh, into, into effect to make sure that, Hey, this actually does become affordable housing and people who could use it, take advantage of it. And then that helps them give them a leg up. Yeah. An excellent question. A good push. So I'll, I'll separate affordable. When people use the term affordable housing, uh, oftentimes they'll use a kind of capital A affordable, like subsidized, basically like, so government subsidized housing, which is, um, it's a wonderful thing, but it's very constraining as a developer, as somebody who's creating the, the, that kind of opportunity, there's low income housing tax credits, basically credits you can kind of sell and finance buildings. There's a bunch of different ways you can potentially finance yourself to do that. But you're also working within a certain kind of box when it's uh, when it's that kind of financing. There's affordable sort of by um, by requirement or even by deed restriction, which has other sort of you know constraints to it. Generally speaking, I'd say that the one thing we're trying to do and has been really effective thus far is be um, completely authentic and not greedy which sounds easy and is like extremely rare. So when we show up, for instance, like the deals we've got going right now, we showed up, met a group, uh, you know, I won't get into too much of the the details on that because I haven't actually asked this group whether or not they're, they're cool going public with it before we actually kind of do the big unveil. But um, we met a group that we thought really highly of. We thought they were extremely talented, very skilled at actually uh, constructing uh, projects. And we thought they were just, they, they had their, their mission driven, they had their heart in the right place. Uh, but they had a certain challenge and it was a challenge that was something that I think we could solve as long as we we really just cared about solving their challenge. Like we really weren't coming at it from a, a, a sort of place of um, self-interest. So we engaged in conversations just trying to help them. And you can see they started off kind of initially suspicious, like never really met anybody who's talking about big numbers uh, and who really just wants to help me. They might want to help me and also like buying their own pockets, you know, help me and also make their own profit. But that just wasn't our motive. Like we weren't, that's not why we were there and talking and eventually led to what's becoming a partnership, a joint venture actually that will, will, will go live and help them to solve their problems. They already had some significant relationships with, with government entities as well as nonprofits that we could bring to bear. We only got that sort of introduction, that entree, because we approached it with authenticity. The, the one city that I'll meet with tomorrow and hopefully creates this uh, for sale uh, project, you know, I, I showed up and said, I don't, I don't care if I make money on this at all. I want this to exist in the world. Now, nonprofits have that philosophy, but they operate within certain constraints, constraints of their funders, constraints of the, the legal entity they, they've set up to do things. Um, For-profit entities generally have their own constraints, which is, you know, I say greed, not as though it's a bad thing. People need to make a living, but when you show up with a for-profit entity, which is what we have, extremely flexible, and it's a partnership, partner and I are extremely aligned. We don't, like, we we have to push each other to make money, basically, because we're, our, our instinct, he's a, he's on the faculty at Harvard, and he leads the, the lab programs that go out and help, uh, you know, they take students out into the field to help cities to achieve their goals, basically, they work with mayors and, and um, you know, community associations to help them achieve their goals. This is how we're wired. So we really do just show up trying to help, and then very late in the process, try and figure out whether there's any kind of a profit motive that you know could be brought to bear. And frankly, usually by the time we get there, other players in the process are pushing us and saying, guys, you could you should you should be able to make some money on this too. You should be able to have some income. Now we always are are very careful that our investors get the returns they're looking for. Our lenders get paid back in full and we're not, you know, causing them to have to get into a difficult place in their balance sheet. Like so we always do right by everybody who's trusted us, everyone who's tried to, you know, partner with us. 
that authenticity of showing up and really truly just wanting the thing to exist, whether we do it in some of the advisory work that we do or the development stuff, once people believe it, it completely changes the approach. I mean, I can't tell you how many people like their, their physical body language changes. Like you can actually see them relax when they're like, Oh, you, you, you really mean it. Like you actually are, you're not one of these, you know, it's a private equity firm that, that, that claims to have a mission, but seems to make the same amount of money as everybody else and everything they do. Like you're, you're, you actually care about this, this existing in the world. Uh, then they also give you some credibility that you can leverage. And so in, in one of my conversations, I said like, look, I, the, the city organization, I know, I know you really want, you want to create a quality product for people. I totally get it. But some of the requirements that you have are creating a quality of product that people outside of your community can afford and people inside your community cannot. So if you partner with me to value engineer this thing, to really bring the cost of the project down, then I think people in your own community can naturally afford it. I understand you're concerned about delivering something that doesn't feel like it's worthy of your community, but you, you really have to be honest about what the cost is. Because do you want people coming in from two towns over and thinking they're getting a steal by buying in your town and they kind of just you know commute back to the, where they used to live to do all their shopping and, 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 and um, do all their spending? Or do you want to lift up and bring into home ownership people in your community today? And this, this happens to be a city with very low home ownership rate. And hopefully it'll be successful. But them believing me, believing that I really mean it, that I wasn't just trying to cut costs and line my own pockets, and me authentically saying, like, I don't, I really don't care if I make money on this. Like, I'm 100% committed to this. If you're committed to make this exist, I'm committed to help you make it exist. And I'm just very fortunate uh, that you know, I don't, I don't have an expensive lifestyle and I don't need to make a lot of money uh, and I'm, I'm not, you know, desperate rubbing two nickels together right now. So I can, I can invest my time in the ways that I want to try and create some of the outcomes that I seek. Is this more fun for you than your other, I'll say jobs? Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely a lot of fun, but I had a ton of fun in everything I've done. I mean, the, the last job I had, I mean, being the CEO of Cold Banker was, you know, at the time I used to tell people like, this is the greatest job I'm ever going to have. Like I am, I could not possibly be having more fun and feeling like I'm having more of an impact on more people than what I was doing then. And it was true. I mean, there was like every single day, there was literally dozens of opportunities for me to have an impact on people's lives in part because real estate is so entrepreneurial. So if you were helping someone to accomplish something, there, like the sky's the limit, like there really was not a limit. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't people who were stuck in a box. It was people who could really do just about anything with their 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 lives, their careers, help their families, um, and so I, I don't I don't know that I will ever have a, a role that will be able to impact people's lives as much uh, as what I was doing before. So, but I I also fully appreciated it every second when I was in it, like fully one hundred percent. I had no regrets. Like it, it, I every morning I woke up and I was like, I am lucky to be able to do this for another twenty four hours, and felt that way every day. So. I had a lot of fun then. I have a lot of fun now. Uh, I've lived in 28 different places and people ask me like, you know, where I liked. And I'm like, I like 28 of them, like maybe 27. Like one was kind of a little lame, but like, I mean, I, I pretty much love everywhere I've ever lived. I love every, every job I've ever done. I mean, I just, I just, I have a lot of fun in pretty much, pretty much everything. There was one job I had very briefly that was eventually became somewhat soul deadening. But, uh, but other than that, I mean, I pumped gas, man. Like I pumped gas and, and worked in a, a, an auto shop total of probably a hundred hours a week, every, every week. I had a blast. It was great. You know, I was being paid out of three different entities. So the, the owner didn't have to pay me overtime and I still had fun. Uh, you know, it was great. Uh, you know, it was right where a bunch of different roads intersected. So people come in all the time lost is before GPS and I'd be able to help them out, you know, ask where they're going, get to know them a little bit, you know, have five minute conversation where I hear about like them and their, you know, their annoying cousin and how they're going to see their wife for the first time in two months and like why they're, you know, they're hauling wood back for their, you know, for their boss and whatever else. I mean, it's just awesome. I'd meet people all the time and, and get to connect even briefly, help them out a little bit and then they'd be on their way. It's really cool. I, I guess now here, hearing you, especially the way you just described your last role uh, and the the part that you took out of it. I, okay. I, I get it now. Um, I could see why that was just as fun or why all your jobs or most all but one of your jobs have been just as fun. It's in, it's in your approach in your approach to uh i think you you said something to the effect of like uh basically forget about networking or meeting people but just like worry about helping people and when yeah. you get to take that approach or when you do take that approach in your role whether it's a job 
or you're, you know, you're an entrepreneur and it's your small business or, uh, or whatever, it's going to, I guess if you're taking that approach, it's fun for you and rewarding to you. And therefore they're all going to be fun. I think so. And, and it can be fun for everybody else too. I mean, I, the number of times, whether it was like a volunteer project, I remember my wife and I volunteering to run the concession stand at a minor league ballpark to benefit uh, the Ronald McDonald house. And uh, it was in Camden, New Jersey, and it was so hot. I mean, it was, it was actually a hundred degrees, like just outside that day, but we were walk, working in like, you know, flipping burgers and making hot dogs, like in a stadium that had no, no ventilation. I and mean, it was, it was so, we probably lost like 20 pounds of water weight, just, just working back there. But we also unexpectedly, because of some sort of mistakes that happened, uh, we're basically in charge of the place and we're running that place. And the people who showed up, a lot of them were the hour employees who were there every day. And like their job was probably not super fulfilling. We were just so annoyingly positive and helpful and running around. I don't know what their managers were normally like, but I, I gather they weren't like as high energy, maybe running around helping people and like, you know, finishing off something they were doing, like giving them lots of praise and kudos. And like, that was awesome. Like fantastic. High five. They thought we were so lame. I mean, they probably still think we're lame, but like they thought like we were so just dorky and annoying. And, and then like hour two, hour three, hour four, you can just see like their energy level going up, like their speed going up, their pace, they're hiding five one another. Like by the time we were done, we were all exhausted because it was, it was really damn hot. But we also had fun. Like we all had fun. And we were, and we viewed like helping the people who come up to the counter. Like, hey guys, we got a long line, like all hands on. Like, let's get this rolling. Let's make a bunch of drinks in advance. We can hand them out. Like, let, let's make things better. Like, you know, someone came up with an idea of what to do with the buns. And like, we did that thing. They had an idea and we did it. And they were like, wow, like, you know, normally I have an idea and I keep it to myself, but like I voiced it. We did it. Like, you know, by the end of that, like, I think they had a fun day at work, like, you know, or maybe I'm just like, you know, telling myself the story I want to hear or looking at things through rose colored glasses, but it seemed like they had a fun day at work and we woke up that morning and saw that it was going to be 98 degrees and humid. They probably weren't thinking like, this is going to be so much fun. Like, <laughs> but by the time they went home, they were probably like, yeah, it was all right. You know, these people showed up, they were kind of lunatics, but like, yeah, it was all right. These people were so annoyingly in a good mood, but you know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's awesome. I, I think that proves, uh, I think that just proves the point uh, I'm trying to, it's going to escape me, but basically the view of like, uh, regardless of what situation you're in or what your job is, there's a way to, um, if you just show up with all of you and who you are, no matter what the role is, you don't see anything as beneath you or above you, uh, then you can actually, you can have impact. I think that's the case. And that's how you operate along with your, your partner and your team. Right. I mean, I've watched that, you know, firsthand. I think that's what you, you bring to it. I, you know, I've chatted when things haven't gone, you know, to plan perhaps, or like the market hasn't kind of gone the, the way you want it to. And the attitude and approach that both you and your partner take to it are, they're probably inspiring and uplifting to the people with whom you're working, whether it's your team members, your clients or, or both. Um, and like, that's got to be intentional. It might be just like how you're wired in many cases, but it's also how you choose to respond to situations. Like, I'm sure you have heavy days. I'm sure you have moments where you're like, oh man, I'm not really sure how to handle that. But it's not really what, what the world's seeing. Yeah. You know, as I, as I think about it, um, not, not necessarily, I wasn't planning to talk, you know, real estate companies or anything like that, but I, I think about the way Fred and I get to show up uh, to not just our team members, but what I would call my organization or my group with inside of inside of inside of EXP Realty. One of the things that brings us so much joy, or why we why we enjoy it so much, is the fact that I get to show up. I get to have conversations with other business owners who are doing something maybe I've I've done before, or I've wrestled with before, or my buddy Sarah or Jimmy ha has wrestled with it. And then I can make a connection and I don't, I'm not swiping anybody's credit card for it. I'm literally just yeah. trying to help them. The company's going to pay me and that's great. And that's the beauty of it. But I literally get to just take it from a standpoint of like, I want to help you. You want to help me or you need some help. I, I can help or, or vice versa. And, uh, you know, I guess I really hadn't thought about it from those, from those, uh, from that angle in the way that you've approached everything, but it, it's just, that keeps, that keeps ringing true to me. So um, I think that's, that's awesome. And I'll say the way I've kind of 
thought about what I used to do and sort of that world in general, right? In the sort of real estate sales world. And what I'm doing now is I viewed that as um, kind of uh, subscription-based as opposed to a la carte. Like what I used to do, I used to just get help to help people all day, every day. Like I was never swiping a credit card to your point. I was never asking anybody like, all right, go ahead and like pay me at the end of this, right? It was my job to just help people, help people, whether they were on our team, they were contemplating joining our team, they were outside in the world and people would just sort of think like, well, you know, if he's putting good work, work out there, then maybe it's karma and like it'll benefit the company in some way down the road. Like I just got paid on a subscription basis for helping everybody. Now in this world that I'm in, I'm taking the exact same approach, which is very atypical for the kind of work that I'm doing. And you know, my wife will remind me once in a while, like, hey, like you're not on subscription. So when that person does offer to pay you for that, like maybe don't push them back quite so hard. Like maybe maybe allow once in a while to, you know, some money to come the door. Because she does worry that you know her, her rule for we, we give away any any income that come in, we 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 give it away basically as soon as it comes in. And and she had to institute a rule years ago that was like, you can't give away the mortgage. So like we could not, we started bouncing mortgage checks. Like someone would be like, oh, I don't have any rent. We're like, oh, here's rent. And she's like, did you notice the foreclosure notice that like, you know, like we should really, we should really like make sure we're covering at least our mortgage. So we do live by that rule. But it is, I mean, it's just a wonderful way to be on the subscription basis. And um, in your world, you can do that because I think you will benefit. Clients will see that and that will be beneficial. Agents will see that and whether they join your team or they just refer clients to you or someone else asks like, Hey, do you know anyone in Phoenix? Like not only know someone, I know someone great in Phoenix and it's going to come back to you. Like I think that karmic approach actually does work very well in real estate sales. I think in other sectors, it works, uh, it works as well over the long term, but it's not quite as um, trackable as in real estate sales with people referring business in the same way because of the, you know, the throughput, uh, but it was glorious. And I, while I fully appreciated every minute of what I was doing before, I didn't quite think of it that way. I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate the subscription nature of it. Now I'm on an a la carte plan and I'm still walking around as though I'm, you know, getting a subscription uh, and I'm not. So I have a little bit of work to do on the business model. Well, uh, something tells me you're, you're going to do okay on it. Um, last kind of question as I start to wind down to go, to go back to the, uh, for lack of a better word, affordable housing, or just making, I'll just say making impact in communities uh, and bringing thing affordable options to people um, for the agent out there who's listening, who's interested in that, whether they're actually interested specifically in, in BTC RE mm -hmm. or in just kind of getting involved in their own local communities. How, how does somebody go about, um, contributing or starting to, to contribute to that, to that. Yeah. Lots of ways, especially for, uh, for an agent or really anybody, but lots of different ways that you can potentially contribute. One is being active in your community. So um, for true affordability to exist in a community, it needs to have been approved at some point in time. There's relatively few places in the country where uh, you have a developer, someone who, you know, developers, people can sometimes think is like a bad word, but basically somebody who creates housing um, can do that as of right, meaning they don't need variances, they don't need to go through an elaborate process and get lots of feedback on design and be told what color bricks to use and to lower the height of the building by six inches and all that kind of stuff. Like they actually can just go and build. As soon as you have hurdles that require you to, to go through those various processes to get variances and get design approval and all that stuff, a lot of people are just out. Like people think of developers as like rich people. Like most developers are not. Most developers are living on a knife's edge all the time. And most developers, frankly, are small scale, right? And and they don't they don't have this sort of elaborate resource mechanism. So as soon as you have a few different processes they need to go through, where they need to go meet with architects and traffic engineers and attorneys, always multiple attorneys, that knocks them out of the box. And that stuff only exists because people created it. And usually people created it to stop very specific things from happening that somebody didn't like. Now, that might be you. It might be somebody who's listening who sits there and says, like, well, yeah, I didn't want that thing to happen. And I went and voiced my concern. I stopped it. But most of the time, butters have veto rights, basically. Like, the only people who show up at a township or a city council meeting or a design review or a zoning board meeting and object to something, or the only people who show up at all, basically, are the people who are trying to get the project done. And the people who are against it, the people who are against it are the people who are usually surrounding it. So if everyone has the right to say what is on their next door neighbor's property, then like the stuff we need is never going to exist because I don't know, like 
just think about where you've gone in the last week, the retail stores you visited, like where you went to get gas, like, you know, where you dropped your kids off, the community center, all those things, like almost everybody wants them to exist and be accessible to them personally, and they never want them to be next door. So if we always give rights to abutters for absolutely everything, then nothing gets done. And then people wonder why they're sitting in traffic so much and why they have to go three towns over to get the thing they really like. And why can't our town be more like that? Why can't our town be walkable? And I, I guarantee if you, if you have a walkable town, where you visit a walkable town, I guarantee you it is illegal for that town to be built again. Like almost everything that you love is would require a variance and is against the law. It is not as a right buildable, right? So when you think about how to get involved as a citizen, show up, like actually show up. And when something comes up to the zoning board, be like, hey, I, I, I'm just letting you know, I don't live next door. But I think that's pretty cool. Like I want that thing. I want that thing to happen. And by the way, that rule that you're just talking about passing to stop all these other things, I don't want that rule. Just so you know, I don't want that rule. I know the only people you've heard from the last hour have all said they hate everything. Actually, like I've got lots of friends who aren't here on Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. In, you know, for a five-hour meeting that's going to go past midnight. But like, they're all cool with all this. They're just busy. And then I'm making time for it. So I'm here to represent them. And I will bring their opinions. And I will try and get them to email you directly or whatever. But like, show up. And then as a real estate agent, all kinds of things you can do to dispel myths. So for instance, people talk about low-income housing. In many areas of the country, including increasingly Phoenix, you, you might be someone who's earning $85,000 a year and you're in the category of the what's called AMI, the area mean income, for which affordable housing can build. Like you can actually get affordable uh, housing financing to build in the 80 to 120% AMI or 80 to 115% AMI category. And yet when people talk about it, they, they just assume that everyone moving into anything that is affordable is impoverished and they're probably impoverished because it was their fault. They did, you know, this whole bunch of judgment, like moral judgment that basically comes into this equation and no one thinks, oh, wait a second, isn't that like cousin Jimmy? And actually, frankly, wasn't that, wasn't that us like five years ago, honey? Like, wouldn't we have actually qualified for that? And by the way, like the person who was so appreciative helped our daughter to, you know, learn when she had that challenge, when it came to, you know, reading or hearing or whatever else, like. Man, now that I think about it, she was making like $14 an hour, I think. Like, where is she gonna live? Like, she's she's like 35% AMI. Like, where like start thinking that way and helping your clients to think that way when these these things are proposed, these things emerge and like put it into context, put people's names and faces next to the potential people who live there. Because the people who might live in a place that's not yet built never show up at the meeting, right? They're not represented. Yet it has to exist for them to be able to have a place to to live and to work and to thrive. And you can dispel a lot of those, a lot of those myths, including Section Eight, the voucher program, where you know it's it's unfortunately lots of landlords are, are totally against it, and they're against it in part because of the administrative challenge, and in part because of some of the stigma that's associated with it. And I just, I, you know, I would just encourage everyone, much like some of the stigma around um, like mental health, for instance, is falling away, and people are being more open with some of the challenges that they might be facing with stress or anxiety or depression or whatever else. Uh, hope that some of the stigma around mixed income and affordability and affordable by design, but also affordable by subsidy starts to fall away. And real estate professionals can do that. They can put it into context. When someone says, oh, can you believe they want to build this? You can say, yeah, I know. And let me just tell you, um, the firefighter that I just worked with last week, like he's excited about the opportunity to potentially live in that, um, in that development. Actually, one of my client's son's moved away because they couldn't afford to live here, but they really want to move back home because they're about to have kids. And man, my client is so excited to be a grandparent, but they just, they can't afford it. But they're hoping maybe if that place gets built, they're going to be able to get a place in it. They'll, they'll get a, they'll get a place in the line in the lottery. Imagine your client's response when that, when that comes back to them. And by the way, that was inoffensive. You didn't judge them. You didn't, you didn't tell them the way they were thinking about it was wrong. You just put it into context with humans and faces and stories that they could relate to. And now you're helping them to think a little differently. So they're not going to show up and object. And maybe someday they'll even show up in favor of a project that can help us create what we need to see. You, uh, you remind me of a, of a quote. I'm not sure if she actually is the one that said it or, uh, or, if, or if she just repeated it and I heard it, but uh, an author by the name of Brene Brown often says it's hard to hate somebody up close. And when you, yeah. when you do what you just said, what you're, what you're bringing, what you're doing is you're bringing, you're bringing it up close for people. It's really easy to kind of hate or not want like, not want that thing in my neighborhood, if you will, totally. uh, when it's not close to you. And then when you realize it is close to you, it's the, it's the tutor, it's the, it's the fireman, it's the other, you know, the grandson of a friend or something like that. You start to mm -hmm. realize like, wow, okay. When it's up close now, 
Yeah, we're talking about human beings here. So maybe we could all help out. Yeah. Absolutely. Well said. I love the quote. So uh, attributing it to her or not, I think it's a great quote. And I think that's, uh, it's very true. So very true. Awesome. Well, Ryan, uh, this hour has gone by extremely quick and I just wanted to say thank you for your time uh, and thank let you. you know how much I appreciate you as a person, but also what you're doing in, in the communities and, and in the business world. I think uh, operating from the way that you operate, uh, while may not always please your wife, uh, is in <laughs> the family, you're, you're definitely, you're making an impact and, and you're, you're pleasing and, and doing things for, for the greater good. And, uh, I just, I know that I probably don't always hear it a lot or enough, but I appreciate watching you do what you do. And, and I know a lot of other people do too. So I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I always appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Love what you're doing. Love the, the stories you lift up. So thank you for doing this and the work that you do every day. And, uh, and on behalf of my uh, my wife and family, I also add that uh, whatever I complain about that, my wife will say, you know, you, you make me sound like I got a problem with this. She's like, I just don't want to be homeless. She said, my line is literally homelessness. Like, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with me. Not with you. So, yeah, yeah, all right. All right. Totally. I'll I'll round out the story next time. So, so anyway, I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate you, sir. I have, you know, I don't know her well, but so far I've seen her draw two lines in the sand. One was we're married we should probably live together and yeah. and the other one is if we're going to live together we should probably be able to pay the mortgage on that house we're living together in yes she seems fairly reasonable so high bar uh, very high bar yeah <laughs> let her know that she's got she's got someone on her team uh voting awesome. on her side so i'll right, do that right. thanks man. i appreciate man uh we will talk again soon thanks a lot for being a guest on the right, show. look forward to it thanks man take care thank you for tuning in to today's podcast we hope you enjoyed it if you're looking for even more valuable content and resources to help you grow your business, then we invite you to join our community, Next Level Agents at eXp Realty. By joining us, you'll gain access to exclusive benefits like live trainings, events, masterminds, weekly Zooms, digital downloads, and so much more, all designed to help you grow your business. To learn more and become a part of our community, simply visit kevinandfred.com forward slash contact and get in touch with us today. Of course, if you're not quite ready to take the plunge and join our community, that's no problem at all. You can still access all of our great content for free right here on this podcast. And again, we thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing to bring you valuable insights and more advice in the future.